Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Owl Man of Greenhill Coppice by Ian Gordon. Three. Saturday, October 4th. Van Melsen was sleeping. Having written off the evening, owing to the evasiveness of Michael Blakely, he and Kane had retired to rooms five and seven, respectively, deciding to take advantage of an opportunity to rest. It was just after midnight that the investigator had last glanced at the clock by the bed. He'd had a devil of a time getting off. The lodge, apparently, was a hive of activity. Beams moaning above his head, floorboards screeching beneath the bed, distant doors rocking to and fro on their hinges, loose panes of glass tap-tap-tapping for hours on end. And just what old Blakely himself had been up to till midnight— despite telling the pair he was dead on his feet, traipsing up and down the corridors with a pace that seemed inconsistent with the frail shadow of a man they'd met earlier, Van Melsen had shuddered to surmise. And now he was dreaming, a strange dream, the likes of which he'd never experienced before. He was at the top of a mountain. No, he was by the edge of a cliff, and the cliff was underground. Yes, he was in a large cave, looking down upon an immense body of water, a shimmering glacial lake, it seemed, and there was something down there, hovering, a giant blimp, like a zeppelin, only more elaborate. What was it doing down there, floating above a subterranean lake? Who was aboard? But wait, were the hairs standing up on the back of his neck? Yes, they were. Somebody was behind him, approaching slowly and stealthily. Butterflies took up residence in the pit of his stomach. This person meant to do him harm. He could feel it in his dream bones. Only one thing to do. A simple thing, really. Jump. As the dream investigator lurched forward, the sound of knocking in the waking world plucked him from the edge of that precipice, and up he shot in the bed of room five, sweating, his heart pounding. Across the hall, in room seven, Kane too had heard knocking. It was 2.37 a.m., and he hadn't slept a wink. What troubled the young insomniac, though, was the source of the knocking. It was immediately evident to his alert ears that the rapping hadn't sounded at his door. Rather, it seemed to have sounded from a large wardrobe on the north wall of the room. Overcoming what he felt was an irrational sense of fear— he climbed to his feet, slipped into the dressing robe thrown casually over an armchair by the bed, and approached the wardrobe. Like the sideboard in the hall downstairs, the wardrobe was a gamely, highly polished affair, most likely mahogany, lurking after the fashion of a static behemoth in the shadows. The knocking sounded again, and this time Kane was convinced it was coming from the wardrobe, from within the wardrobe. With visions of Narnia filling his sleep-deprived mind, he swallowed his nerves and yanked the heavy wardrobe door open. Van Melsen, wide awake now, was on his feet following the second bout of knocking. He too donned an available dressing robe and left room five, 
Across the shadowy hall he tiptoed, placing an ear against the door to room seven. Hearing muted dialogue on the other side, he set fire to caution and tried the handle. Locked. Norman? he called quietly. Everything all right in there? The sound of approaching footsteps on the other side of the door reassured the investigator. Seconds later, the door swung inwards, revealing Kane in his own rather fetching white gown. I heard knocking, Van Melsen went on. Kane nodded, a strange look on his face. What is it? the investigator pressed. Maintaining his silence, Kane beckoned him in and pointed at the vast wardrobe on the north wall. Oh, Van Melsen managed, his face a blank canvas. Hello? Hello, came the response from the wardrobe. But it wasn't the wardrobe itself that was speaking. It was the familiar visage of the young lady in the grey shawl, the girl with the sapphire eyes who had passed them in the street the previous evening. What's going on, Norman? Van Melsen whispered to Kane. Uh, Kane mumbled, scratching his head. Well, this is Annie, and apparently there's something she wants us to see. It's true, the girl said, nodding. But we haven't much time. Come on. And she turned, ducking into what appeared to be a narrow passageway behind the wardrobe. The investigator looked at Kane, and they both shrugged before going after her. Meeting Annie on the threshold of the dimly lit passageway, the pair saw that the corridor beyond seemed to be an extension of the wardrobe itself, as though it had been carved of the very same wood. The lodge changes, the girl said. You hear it creaking and groaning, night after night. Some nights it has extra rooms. Other nights it has corridors like this. How's that possible? Kane blurted, aghast. I don't know, Annie said. But it started when old Blakely brought that book back. Millith? Van Melsen put in. Is that what it's called? The girl asked, shrugging her shoulders. The investigator nodded. It's a real piece of work, he said nodding intensely. It shouldn't be here. Certainly not in the hands of one who doesn't know a thing about it. Where's this corridor go? Kane continued, his imagination caught up in the strangeness of it all. My bedroom. Annie returned, matter-of-factly. Your bedroom? Kane stammered. You live here? The girl shook her head vehemently. No, no, she said. I live a few streets down from here. Then I... Kane began only to stop when his dark-adapted eyes caught the suggestion of movement a ways down the corridor. When the investigator opened his mouth to speak, Annie shushed him by placing an index finger over her lips. A few tense seconds passed, as the trio waited for whatever it was to cease its shuffling. The light of the corridor afforded enough illumination for Van Melsen and Kane to make out the shape of a figure— some thirty feet or so along the corridor, sitting quietly on a chair. I know it isn't her, Annie whispered, but that lady looks exactly like my grandmother. Kane swallowed audibly. Van Melsen leaned forward to get a better look at the silhouette in the darkness. Is that what you wanted to show us? No, Annie said immediately. It's what she has on her lap. It was Van Melsen's turn to gulp. And what's that exactly? He managed. Annie, her eyes still bright in the shadows, said, The book. Ah, 
The investigator sighed. Old Blakely hasn't seen it for days. Annie continued. It drove him mad. Turned the lodge inside out, then disappeared. Turns out Granny's been holding on to it. Kane tapped Annie on the shoulder. So, what now? I hope you're not expecting one of us to go after it. She looks like my grandmother, Annie said, still whispering. I don't want to go anywhere near her. Van Melsen, knowing what was expected of him, puffed out his chest, tightened the dressing robe around his waist, and stepped into the passageway proper. Be careful, Annie quietly called after him. The investigator paid no heed to her words, simply edged forwards, one bare foot at a time, along the curious wooden corridor. Everything about the passage was wrong. The homogeneous wood comprising floor, walls, and ceiling, the inexplicable glow that seemed to emanate from the very air about him, air that was appallingly close and humid, and the dreadful silence of the place, as though he'd stepped into a sort of limbo space between two worlds. He could feel his heart still thumping in his chest, memories of the strange dream still lingering on the edge of his perception. Granny was a little clearer now, a diminutive figure, sitting in complete stillness on the chair. A Queen Anne it was, its arms supporting the lifeless limbs of its occupant. As Van Melsen neared the inert form, he imagined himself as a child, playing the quiet game. In order to win the quiet game, absolute silence must be maintained. No sudden movements, no heavy footsteps, no sneezes or involuntary coughs. And then it occurred to him, what exactly was this strange being ahead of him? Why had it chosen to take the form of the young lady's grandmother? Was it an attempt to lure her? Would it, he now pondered, choose to take the form of someone from his life? His grandmother? Just stop, he thought to himself. It doesn't matter. Not right now, anyway. Within a couple of feet of the frozen figure, the investigator spotted the prize on the old lady's lap. Just focus on the book, his thoughts went on. Don't look at the face. Anything but the face. But the very thought persuaded him to do just that. And what followed transpired in less than ten seconds. Van Melsen's eyes moved in the direction of Granny's head, and found not a face, but a mask of petrified wood, with gaping black recesses where the eyes should have been, and an upturned slit in place of a mouth. Wiry stems protruded from the wooden head, curved and snake-like, a poor imitation of human hair. Seeing this, the investigator let out a frenzied gasp, the intensity of which had the unfortunate effect of bringing the petrified lady back to life. The head pivoted round to face him, creaking as it did so, sounding just like the moans and screeches that had resounded throughout the house after bedtime. Leaping forward, he grabbed the book from Granny's lap and took off running the way he came, narrowly avoiding the questing, gnarled hand that sought to grab him. "'Hurry!' cried Annie, waving her hands in the air, cane by her side, eyes wide and disbelieving. Van Melsen galloped, the white robe flailing behind him, a target for the groaning wooden monstrosity that was after him. 
The thing grasped and lunged, brushing but not quite touching that which it so desperately sought. The two on the threshold quickly retreated, encouraging the investigator as they did so. You can make it! Annie yelled, as with one tremendous act of will, Van Melsen hurled himself forwards like one competing in the long jump, landing on his backside in the middle of room seven. Kane, coming to his senses at last, pushed Annie aside and reached for the wardrobe door. The wooden mass, for that was what it now resembled, a veritable storm of lumber hurtling towards room seven, came within a few inches of the door as the young man slammed it closed. One final groan echoed on the other side, the cry of something defeated, and then there was silence. And all that in less than ten seconds. In the middle of the room, his chest rising and falling, like the ebb and flow of a turbulent tide, Van Melsen clutched the copy of Milleth in his bony hands, a small, leather-bound book with faded, gilt edges, an anonymous-looking tome by all accounts. "'What now?' asked Kane, wearing the look of one just roused from a particularly vivid nightmare. "'We've a bit of reading to do,' babbled the investigator, holding the book in one hand, and with the other searching the empty pockets of the dressing-gown for a cigarette. With understandable trepidation, the three that had escaped the clutches of the wooden lady established themselves in room five, eager to remain there till dawn. Here, Van Melsen found a cigarette, and lit it hastily. Kane, still bewildered, looked to the girl with the sapphire eyes questioningly. "'I was at home, sleeping,' she began. "'It was a gust of air that woke me, blew right across my face.' I shut up and found myself looking into that wooden tunnel. It's weird. I'd overheard talk of guests experiencing strange things at the lodge, so I kind of just accepted what I was seeing. Van Melsen, inhaling deeply, listened to Annie's account intently, as he sat himself cross-legged by the room's only window. Light from a street lamp fell on him, highlighting the sharp lines of his gaunt face. I dressed, Annie continued, and decided to check it out. There was a voice in the back of my head telling me to enter the tunnel, to follow it to the opposite end, where I'd find you. This she said while looking at Kane. What voice? Kane asked. I can't explain it. If anything, it sounded like my own voice. Uh, go on, Kane urged. I did as the voice commanded. Annie went on. I made my way along the tunnel. The old woman in the chair was at the midpoint between my room and yours. I knew what she was holding the second I saw it. I've eavesdropping to thank for that, too. But I wasn't expecting to see Granny in there. What the hell was that thing? If it's what I think it is, Van Melsen volunteered, you might call it a cow. I'm guessing here, but it's possible the thing took on the form of your grandmother to deter you from going after the book. Annie frowned, exhaling deeply. "'Cow?' Kane asked for clarification. "'K-O-W. Cow. Occupants of a limbo-like plane, referred to, in some circles at least, as the Fringe. They're impersonators, using their shape-shifting abilities to steal objects of uh, perceived value from those foolish enough to enter their realm. 
With their ill-gotten gains, they seek to carry favour with higher powers by offering gifts. In this case, a worthless copy of Milleth. Worthless? This from Annie. Look, the investigator invited, flicking through the retrieved book. There are pages missing, torn out and presumably incinerated. Blakely's work? Kane ventured. Assuredly, Van Melsen said, puffing on the cigarette. It seems clear to me that the book seduced our old friend. Drawn in by what he read there, easily done, this being an English translation of the text, he likely recited one or several of its verses, or canterrhythms as they're known, and quite possibly produced what some have called a localized rift between this reality and the fringe. And he just torched the pages afterwards? Cain asked. Necessary to perform this uh, kind of incantation. Cain scratched his chin thoughtfully. Annie frowned again, but the look on her face was that of one convinced. And this is the cause of everything happening in Greenhill? She asked. The investigator shrugged his shoulders. Either way, the really troubling part, he went on, is that the presence of a cow usually indicates the presence of those higher powers they seek to cajole. Here, Van Melsen looked to Annie. Have you seen this owl man, Annie? The girl shook her head. I've heard about it, but I haven't seen it with my own eyes. Van Melsen nodded, turning his attention to the book before him. Kane approached and dropped into position next to him on the wooden floor. Annie followed suit, and the three of them sat quietly, listening to the worrying creaks and groans echoing throughout the old lodge. Now patently aware of the potential source of the sounds, the trio sat rigid with apprehension. Docking his cigarette carefully, Van Melsen began flicking through the leather-bound book, educating his company to the best of his ability, with regards to contents familiar to him, and shaking his head in puzzlement when encountering contents unfamiliar. The problem with copies such as this, he said, is that much is lost in translation. It might very well be that certain verses and incantations are perfectly translated, whilst the corresponding revocations are either hopelessly translated or missing entirely. Without speaking to old Blakely, it's impossible to tell just what it was he recited. It'll be tough to undo if he can't or won't tell us. This passage here, however, he continued, indicating a sequence of paragraphs and quotations, may at least shed some light on what it is we're up against. The section in question, found towards the end of the book, was described as a cryptic paraphrasing of data found in that most abhorred of grimoires, the Mad Arab's Necronomicon, a section concerning the nature of the malevolent being, Milleth. Milleth is a harbinger of dread a void-bound being whose visage is a subterranean slime. It is said that when the veil between dimensions is thin, worn down by the relentless flow of time, Milleth seeks the light, driven by a purpose as mysterious as it is abhorrent. Upon its emergence, Milleth selects a semblance, and with a queer hunger born of the abyss, it preys upon the creatures of light, stealing them from the sun, and wrenching them into the inky blackness of the void. In the depths of that barren realm of shadow, 
The kidnapped souls are subjected to a fate too ghastly to comprehend. Whispers told over the embers of dying fires tell of a veritable hell, where Milleth watches over black cauldrons of bubbling shadow, wherein the muted victims of light boil and liquefy over and over again, a process unmarked by the passage of time, an eternity of indescribable suffering, which to Milleth is as air to human lungs. The purpose of these monstrous abductions remains a riddle that continues to elude the most erudite of scholars. But speculation is rife. Rituals of cosmic manipulation, the sowing of discordant energies, vibrations designed to further corrode the veil between dimensions. Others suggest that Milleth seeks to permanently eliminate the veil, whereupon the void will spill into the world of light and absorb it utterly. Legends speak of brave souls who have embarked on perilous journeys to retrieve those ensnared by Milleth's grasp, venturing into the abyss by way of astral travel. But such quests are fraught with peril, for the realm of Milleth is a labyrinth of shifting perceptions, an ever-changing expanse that has no capacity for logic or reason. None who venture there return with their minds intact— their rambling tales fragmented and irrational. Beware the whispers that herald Milleth's arrival, for its presence represents a rapture in the natural order, a tear in the very tapestry of reality. When the veil between dimensions is thin, it is the duty of those who wield the forbidden knowledge to guard against Milleth, to seal the boundaries that shelter the world of light from the clutches of the void-bound fiend. The secrets of Milleth remain a riddle that humankind may never fully decipher, a shadowy enigma that serves as a grim reminder of the terrors that lurk beyond the threshold of our understanding. "'In the morning,' muttered Van Melsen, shuddering, "'we'll meet again with Mr. Blakely, and see if we can't formulate a plan of action. For now, I think we should try to get some rest. We're going to need it.' Four. The remainder of those early Saturday hours were spent in and out of light sleep. The unlikely trio sprawled across the floor atop duvets, throws, and a dozen pillows. Dreams were brief but vivid, in which, collectively, the three near strangers saw the wooden face of Granny pursuing them across interminable gulfs of darkness, and always in the shadow of a giant owl a spectral demon in the shape of a bird. Dawn finally broke, and as it did, Van Melsen, Kane, and Annie took their turns in the small bathroom, splashing water on their faces, and, in the cases of the investigator and the bookworm, dressing for the day ahead. It was around 7.45 a.m. when the trio took their leave of room five. Van Melsen, taking the lead, suggested a quick glimpse inside Kane's wardrobe, to which the young man protested vehemently, insisting that the three of them had done well enough to escape the cow in the first place. Wardrobe aside, a thorough search of the lodge was conducted, which, according to Annie, appeared as it should, with no new rooms or supplementary corridors. As for old Blakely, the proprietor of the guesthouse was nowhere to be found— 
Could he have stepped out for a breath of fresh air? Kane ventured. Annie immediately shook her head. I doubt it, she said. He hasn't left the house in weeks. Are you sure about that? Van Melsen put in. Annie went to speak, but hesitated. The investigator's comment was prompted by a desk in what evidently served as Blakely's office. Atop the desk were scattered numerous sheets of paper, some the nonsensical scribblings of a befuddled mind, others displaying maps of the village, one of which had specific locations marked. A row of houses on the south side of the village, sent parts to the north, and a seemingly random location in the forest to the east. What could our unwitting warlock have found notable about these particular locations? Van Melsen mused. Look at this, he went on, indicating a handwritten note above the spot marked in the forest. Cuthbert. Cuthbert Baxter, said Annie. Our greengrocer. He lives in the forest? Kane ventured. No, she replied, shaking her head. He lives on Barker's Row, the row of houses marked on the map there. Interesting, Van Melsen murmured. Perhaps this fellow can tell us the whereabouts of old Blakely. Bundling a selection of papers into his satchel, the investigator ushered them out of the lodge. A five-minute trundle across the village was all it took to reach Barker's Row, a small street consisting of seven cottages overlooking a stagnant pond to the east. Like the rest of Greenhill Coppice that Saturday morning, the scene was extremely hushed, as though the residents had decided to pack up and disappear, leaving a ghost town in their wake. Which house is Cuthbert's? the investigator asked. The last cottage on the right, Annie answered. Number six. As Van Melsen carried out his methodical business, studying the brickwork of the greystone dwellings, looking up at the neatly thatched roofs, sniffing the air for goodness knows what, Kane became gradually conscious of a voice in the back of his mind. Nor did it emanate from the trees that surrounded the village. Akin to the voice Annie had described that spoke to her in the night, this voice was very much his own voice, but disconnected from him in a way that he had never before experienced, as though a piece of him was floating in the air above his head. And it was only the tone that was familiar— because he couldn't make out a single word the voice was saying. There was a monotony to it, like a repeated mantra, which stood in envisions of a dark passageway, a claustrophobic tunnel from which poured a noxious arrangement of cacophonous bellows. There was an urgency to the mantra, but it was much too vague, and ultimately too fleeting to impart anything tangible. Finally, the hollowed words of the man in the long black overcoat broke the spell. "'Quickly!' Van Melsen called, with a touch of excitement. Annie, with Kane at her heels, approached the investigator, who was standing by the door of number six, his eyes wide. The door, they saw, was ajar, and from within, like steam escaping from a Manhattan manhole cover, there leaked a low moaning— the source of which was a rasping voice all three present recognized. Van Melsen pushed the door open, and, as Hansel and Gretel followed the trail of breadcrumbs, traced the groan, which led them to the kitchen at the back of the cottage. The sight that awaited them was both ghastly and strange. "'What?' 
started Annie, only to throw a hand over her mouth in alarm and repulsion. The two men just stood there on the threshold of the cramped space, their gazes fixed on the shape, standing upright at the centre of the room. "'Blakely,' Kane managed, his brow creased. And it was the old man, or it had been the old man. For now, all that remained of Michael Blakely was a translucent skin in the shape of a crooked human being, a skin shed after the fashion of a snake, or, more fittingly, a tarantula. The groan the trio had followed faded now, as the last of it escaped from the figure's dried-up lips, and in his shriveled hands, capped beneath his withered chin, was a plain silver key. "'What happened to him?' Annie managed at last. "'I wouldn't dare conjecture,' Van Melsen said, moving forward a couple of paces. "'But I will say that old Blakely has been on borrowed time for a while now.' Whatever he was hoping to achieve this morning, you can be sure it has something to do with that key he's clutching. A search of the small cottage ensued, resulting in little but frustration. Cuthbert Baxter, greengrocer, kept nothing of value at his humble abode, certainly not a safe necessitating a silver key, nor a hidden door in the cellar that the investigator seemed positive he would discover. Baxter's possessions were bland and uninteresting. From the faded photographs of his appearances at multiple food festivals adorning the walls of the living room, to the collection of British bird miniatures on the dresser in his bedroom. Returning to the kitchen, the trio were horrified to discover that the shed skin of Blakely had deflated like a balloon, resembling little more than an untidy pile of leather on the cold tiles. "'What should we do about him?' Kane asked, staring in disbelief at the remains of the old man. "'I suggest we reconvene with Mr. Wilkins,' Van Melsen said. "'We'll need to alert the authorities.' Kane was about to speak, when the investigator continued. "'However,' he went on, "'I'd like to pay a visit to the marked spot in the woods prior to doing so. How far is it from here, Annie?' The young lady shrugged, saying— Ten minutes? What do you say? Van Melsen inquired, addressing both Kane and Annie. The pair nodded simultaneously, knowing that to say no was to miss out on something potentially awesome and strange. Lead the way, Annie, the investigator said. By nine a.m., the three of them were trudging through Cardenham Woods in search of the second location marked on old Blakely's map. Annie was at the head of the group, making her way with familiarity. This pleased Kane, for two reasons. One, it was always good to have a member of the local community on board as a guide. And two, he found himself drawn to the sapphire-eyed girl. She was headstrong and daring, from a family of butchers he'd learned on the hike, a young lady skilled in the art of butchery, with a great respect for the animals from which her family made their living. "'We're almost there,' Annie said, smiling, in spite of the recent strangeness. Approaching a large tree, an English oak as evidenced by the plethora of acorns littering the forest floor below it, the young lady stopped. Kane looked, and saw that she had trod upon what appeared to be a hatch in the ground, a hatch that had been recently accessed, if the lack of acorns atop it was anything to go by.' 
This is the spot, Annie announced, tapping the hatch with a booted foot. How do I know? Well, I can tell you now. I've never seen this hatch before. Van Melsen stepped forward. And wouldn't you know it, he said humorously. There's a keyhole. <laughs> I wonder. The investigator gripped a recessed latch and attempted to lift the hatch. It refused to yield to his efforts. And so he withdrew the silver key from an inside pocket and tried it in the lock. Eureka! he gloated, grinning. Kane saw that the lanky character was in his element here, possibly more than that. It was as though the investigator had anticipated something like this. Withdrawing a cigarette, Van Melsen said, There's something down there, and we need to find out what it is. The girl in the grey shawl approached Kane at this juncture, evidently drawn by the look on his face. Are you okay? she asked. Startled, Kane replied, Me? Oh, yeah, of course. But Annie, and the man by the hatch with the cigarette in his mouth, saw right through Kane's poor attempt at bravado. All right, Kane yielded. If you must know, I can't shake the image of old Blakely from my mind. All dried out like that. Just desiccated skin. Nothing underneath. What happened to the rest of him, for Christ's sake? Here, Annie placed a hand on his shoulder. I know. She sympathised. It's at the forefront of my mind, too. As it should be, the investigator piped up. You'd have to be missing a brain to see a thing like that and walk away unscathed. How do you deal with it? Kane asked. I just move on to the next piece of the puzzle, he said, blowing rings of smoke into the cool air. There's always plenty of time to reflect when the puzzle's solved. Kane, marginally reassured, but still haunted by the picture in his mind, simply nodded and attempted to smile. Annie returned the smile, which Kane found to be much more reassuring than anything the chain-smoking detective had said. Are we about ready? Van Melsen asked, docking the cigarette. Yes, Annie said, eyeing Kane with those blue sapphires. The young man sighed and started towards the hatch. Let's do it, he said. It was Annie who opened the hatch. It came up with little effort, revealing a dimly lit staircase. This surprised the young lady. I'm not sure what I was expecting to find, she said. But it definitely wasn't a flight of stairs. The steps were of stone, and when the trio crouched to get a better view below, they could just about make out a small chamber at the bottom of the flight. Kane surprised his companions by taking the first step. A rush of adrenaline had swept through his veins, and he wanted to make the most of it. Down he went, step by step, Annie directly behind him, and Van Melsen taking up the rear. Reaching the bottom, they found themselves in a cramped space, stone walls enclosing a plain wooden desk, behind which sat a motionless figure, a figure whose very lack of movement had each of them thinking of the cow they'd encountered back at the lodge. Is that— Kane began, only to have Annie complete his question. Mr. Baxter, yes, she affirmed. She took a step towards the desk. Mr. Baxter? She called quietly. Cuthbert, are you all right? But Baxter remained fixed and motionless. Is it him? Kane said in an aside to Van Melsen. 
Or does it just look like him? It's difficult to say, he answered conservatively. Kane studied the figure minutely. The man was a scrawny individual, with an oddly wide head and pronounced cheekbones. A pair of round glasses reflected the light of a candle that sat on the desk in front of him, making the eyes behind them impossible to see. Baxter's arms, long and wiry, were crossed over his chest in an attitude of outright defiance. But the most unusual thing about him was the man's skin. It appeared grey and glossy, brittle even, just like the stone of the walls that made up the chamber. "'Mr. Baxter,' Van Melsen ventured, joining Annie, "'what are you doing down here?' But still, the scrawny man remained stationary. Kane, cautious but not afraid, met his companions, as the investigator withdrew the copy of Milleth from the satchel at his side. Turning towards the back of the small volume, Van Melsen studied what was written there. "'Cuthbert?' Annie called again, looking at the table before the man. Aside from the candle, an ordinary church candle, the table was bare. Suddenly, the investigator yelled, Cowwack Downack! What? Kane began, but soon abandoned his speech when he saw the effect of Van Melsen's strange utterance. The former statue, Cuthbert Baxter, was now alert. Uncrossing his stiff arms, he placed them on the table in front of him. One, the man immediately said, his voice little more than the sawtooth drone of a synthesizer. With moonstone in hand, summon the barn owls. Van Melsen, ready for this outpouring of information, it would seem, had armed himself with a pencil, and was noting down Mr. Baxter's words in the back of Milleth. Two, Cuthbert continued, his stony face alive with motion now. Grind a powder of mugwort, lavender, and yarrow. A portion must be sown if you're to see new tomorrows. Kane frowned. Annie stared. The investigator scribbled maniacally. And three, Cuthbert said, indicating a final instruction. With fire in your belly, you must seek out his lair. From there, and only there, can he return to elsewhere. Van Melsen, with great haste, committed these last words to the back page of Milleth, and it was soon glaringly obvious as to why he had worked so rapidly. Mr. Baxter, once an unassuming greengrocer from the quiet village of Greenhill Coppice, was now a cow, an occupant of the fringe, a servitor of Milleth. The investigator had manipulated the man of stone into divulging a sacred secret, a terrible theft, an unforgivable crime, for which the interloper would pay the ultimate price. "'Move!' Van Melsen bellowed, grabbing both Kane and Annie by the scruffs of their necks, as the clumsy effigy lunged forwards, its cold limbs reaching, clutching, and a moan— a guttural, synthetic whimper accompanied that lunge, a desperate cry, the wail of the damned. The three of them darted for the stone steps, leaping up them three at a time. Once again, Van Melsen found himself within whisper distance of a questing cow, 
its limbs now little more than flailing tentacles, scrabbling at his back, his elbows, the hair atop his head. Like the waters of a geezer, Cain, followed by Annie, and lastly Van Melsen, spewed out of the hatch, leaping clear of the seeking extremities of the cow, finding comfort atop the acorn-strewn earth of Cardinum Woods. Before the fortunate fleers had even realized they'd made it, the cow was gone, as was the hatch, and any sign that it had ever been there. Panting, his heart threatening to burst out of his chest, Van Melsen withdrew a cigarette and lit it promptly. "'I must apologize," he said, wheezing. "'I should have descended alone. An unnecessary risk for the two of you. Please accept my apologies.' Cain looked at the gaunt figure next to him on the leafy ground. This was the first time since their meeting the day before that the investigator had let his mask slip, the facade of the self-assured detective. "'It's okay,' Annie said, a little red in the face. "'I wouldn't have missed it for the world.' Cain shuddered, then chuckled, which, bizarrely, triggered a similar reaction in Van Melsen, who burst into a fit of laughter, his mouth a cavern of mirth, from which streamed the most infectious, raucous howl the young bookworm had ever heard. Later, Cain would look back on this moment as one of the last, truly joyous events of his life. Three strangers who became overnight friends, thanks to a threat from another world. "'Jocularity aside,' Van Melsen said, still tittering, "'we need to be very careful from now on.' These instructions here, he went on, holding up the copy of Millith, need to be carried out to the letter, which, unfortunately, will require some thought on my part. We should head to the breadwinners. I suggest we hole up there for a while. And so the unlikely trio, startled but still alive, climbed to their feet and marched their way back through the damp forest to the breadwinners' grotto.